welcome to From the Frontline. I'm Andrea Combs, and with me in the studio today is my dad, Dr. Peter Hammond. Welcome. It's great to have you in the studio again, Andrea. Always glad to be here. Thanks, Dad. Today we are discussing faith and firearms, the biblical, historical, and practical basis for self-defense. So, Dad, the topic of gun violence and gun control has been a hot topic on the news of late. How should Christians respond to tragic stories of mass shootings? Obviously, first in prayer, and we should grieve for those who grieve, and we should be praying for these people. I see that some have decided to always exploit it for a political agenda, which seems awfully cross uh, to try and advance their political careers or to uh, score points for some agenda. Mm. And that's the way not to respond. Uh, that's right. for sure. I've seen some ministries like Living Waters uh, under Ray Comfort use the opportunities for an evangelistic outreach, which is very effective, where they've looked at school shootings and gone on the streets and asked people and using it in an evangelistic way, also having people think in terms of uh, how fragile human life is and how we need to be prepared for eternity. So there are ways that we can respond that, that are constructive, but unfortunately there's a lot of ways that are destructive. So, for example, some people act like these mass shootings only take place in America or something. I think they're forgetting the fact that there's been colossal amounts of mass shootings organized by governments. I mean, let's just take the history of Ukraine, for example. And in Ukraine, back in the 1920s and 1930s, first under Lenin and then Stalin, they had mass shootings, killing ultimately millions of Ukrainians. Uh, most by starvation, uh, but they first were confiscating the food and confiscating the means of production until the farmers were literally starving to death and watched the bread basket of Europe. And people in Africa have just been surprised to know, oh, we get a lot of our food from Ukraine? How strange. Well, mind you, they used to get them from South Africa. In 1994, South Africa had 70,000 commercial farmers who produced enough food for 100 million people. Now, unfortunately, that was back when we had 28 million population. Now we've got less than 30,000 commercial farmers, and they're producing enough food for 40 million people. But the southern population has more than doubled. We've got more than 60 million population but we're only producing enough food for 40 million, which means we're importing food, including from Ukraine. Would you believe it? South Africa depends on food from Ukraine, amongst wow. other places. But it need, people need to be reminded that Red China had mass shootings of hundreds of thousands of farmers in China. In fact, millions died under Mao Zedong's Red Terror. In Angola, in Mozambique, in Rwanda, in Sudan, there have been mass shootings organized by governments. So we need to be aware of the fact that mass shootings are not just done by crazy people who are on drugs. In fact, it's amazing how much drugs is a common denominator to a lot of these mass shootings. And people need to learn things like this. And some people are on pharmaceutical prescription drugs, which are mind-altering. And it's a wow. common denominator between all of the mass shooters uh, tend to have these mind-altering type of drugs, which, which bear some more investigation. Because there's millions of other people who've got cold metal inanimate objects in their cupboards, which don't compel them to run out and kill people. For sure. example, Switzerland has the largest concentration of firearms percentage of population anywhere in the world. In fact, they've got automatic weapons, weapons of war in virtually every home. But you don't hear mass shootings there normally because the place is pretty well armed. So, for example, Dara was in an apartment, a small apartment on a mission station in Switzerland. I look across the table at a young man and I said, are you an army? And he laughed and said, of course, we all are. 
Switzerland does not have an army. Switzerland is an army. And so I said, I believe you can get ready for war quite quickly. And he said, yes, I can. And I uh, said, how long would it take? He said, I don't know. May I time you? When? Starting now. Click. And five minutes, 20 seconds later, he was back in the dining room, uh, in his uniform, boots laced up, uh, weapon hand, magazine in, bayonets on the edge. And uh, his sister got so excited, she pulled out some other weapons. And then her brothers brought out some more. Another sister brought out more. And they had a whole range of weaponry. I mean, this is a little apartment on a mission station in the Alps. And wow. this is normal. Uh, they even have anti-tank weapons and all sorts of uh, explosives in the average home in Switzerland. And But you don't think of Switzerland a place where there's a lot of mass shootings and gun violence. No. Because... An armed society is a polite society. And uh, where do most of the massacres take place? A place where people have been disarmed. Cambodia, Laos, Vietnam, Rwanda. I mean, there's a classic case. And so when you think about tragic mass shootings, uh, bear in mind that mass shootings normally take place in government, under governments where the people are disarmed, as happened in Mozambique and Angola during the communist era there, as happened in the Congo and so on. So... Uh, we need to understand that, and you don't always need um, firearms for the massacres because in Rwanda, 800,000 people killed with machetes. So I don't think that if you got rid of the guns, there'd be no violence. Gun uh, violence does pre was, um, in fact, you had a lot of massacres before firearms were invented. So uh, Attila the Hun, Genghis Khan, Shaka Zulu, they found that even short-stabbing assegais could kill millions of people. So if somebody thinks that firearms are the problem, I think they're missing some important lessons of history. So indeed, it seems to be more about the people as opposed to the weapons, right? It is. Uh, also, bear in mind that your grandfather, when he was at school in Tennessee, uh, they said that the average pickup truck had a a shotgun or a rifle hanging in the back window, which you could see, and it's not like they even locked the doors, and in the parking lot in the school, and they had shooting at school, and uh, they would have soldiers or police coming through and teaching gun safety as part of the normal drills at a school. When I went to school uh, in Rhodesia, we had two two rifles. Um, I don't even know if they were that locked up. They were in a classroom that was probably locked, but we'd have target practice normally on Fridays and it'd be cadets, and you never heard of shootings in Rhodesian schools, but I do remember one occasion when a school in the Vumba, that's on the on the uh, eastern highlands near Amtali, came under attack by terrorists. I mean, we had born. They were just a kilometer or two from the Mozambique border. Communist terrorists of ZANU came across the border into the school, and one student took one of these tutu rifles and from the upper window fired at these uh, tutu rifles, not a very high caliber, and they were running around with AK-47s, the, the invading terrorists, and he basically caused enough injuries that they fled. So one teenager in the dormitory with a tutu rifle put to flight a whole uh, group of armed terrorists with, wow. with weapons of war. So um, it plainly, many schools have had firearms in them. In fact, I've seen Switzerland. They've got firearms in the schools in Switzerland in the schools because firearm training is part of the schooling in Switzerland. And uh, they teach the kids from primary school already how to handle a whole range of weapons, starting with air rifles, going up through tutus to heavier stuff. Um, I haven't heard of school shootings in Switzerland. So would you say then that the primary 
difference between the schools that do experience tragic school shootings, like as has happened in the news recently, or we've seen in the news rather recently. So would you say the primary difference between schools that do experience school sh shootings versus the ones that don't is an education on how to actually handle firearms and weapons of any kind? That would be a factor, but I think even more than that, we were brought up in schools with discipline where you respected the teachers, and um, I must say we had corporal punishment, and uh, you respect the teachers, there was discipline, uh, God was being taught, the Ten Commands was being taught, uh, respect for life and property was being taught. Uh, the fact is that when you think that through all of history, you often had weapons in schools, and it didn't mean that there was a lot of violence at the schools, so something else has changed. So, for example, at the end of the Second World War, millions of soldiers, trained soldiers, were demobilized, and they poured back into everywhere from Rhodesia, South Africa, America, Australia, and so on. And they came back with vast amounts of souvenir weapons that they'd captured from uh, uh, enemy that they'd been fighting. And not only that, but there was a whole lot of weapons that now were considered um, no longer uh, current. So the South African army was getting rid of its bolt-action old 303 rifles. And so they were selling rifles in South Africa after the Second World War for two rand. Now, that's, that's about one US dollar uh, for a bolt-action rifle because they were now going into automatics and semi-automatics, but you got a, a crate of ammunition free, along with this two rand or one dollar um, uh, rifle. And in fact, the records are clear. Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, America, Rhodesia, South Africa, violence went down when the soldiers came back and when the societies were flooded with millions more weapons, weapons of war, mind you. And literally, violence went down. Now, I think that's part of an armed society as a polite society, but also criminals prefer disarmed victims and tyrants prefer True. disarmed citizens. So uh, the guns themselves don't cause the violence. When did violence go up in the Western world? Not when a whole lot of military men came back from the war uh, with a lot more weapons in a society. The violence started to increase when you had the hippie revolution, uh, the permissive society, uh, the Hollywood um, Code of conduct suddenly went by the wayside in late 60s and suddenly anything went and suddenly you had more and more immorality and pornography and drugs and you had rebellion and th there was this uh, complete breaking down of the family. Now, from that point, from the late 60s on with the permissive society, you suddenly saw far greater crime and in some cases going up 2,000% and more. So uh, plainly, it wasn't the presence of weapons. It was the undermining of mm. biblical Christian family values. And as goes the family, so goes the nation. So with the rise of dysfunctional families and everything from divorce and abandonment of uh, children and all of the rest, you could just see how abuse went up and violence went up. But then there's more to it than that. Governments suddenly abdicate their responsibility for protecting people. For example, when we had consistently in South Africa the death penalty for murder, Murders were in a couple of hundred a year. In Britain, it was something like four murders a year. Mm. Uh, in, uh, in New Zealand, for example, uh, they ha didn't have a police murder from something like 1913 uh, through till about 1980-something. And it's the first police murder in, in something like 75 years. And, of course, the country went uh, ballistic to find the, the murderer because you, you can't murder a policeman. Uh, again, the the... Government enacting consistently death penalty for murder kept the rate of murders down. 
certainly made sure that the murderer didn't wasn't a repeat offender. Um, but once you started to see government failing to protect lives and property, you saw more and more abuse. But I'd say the entertainment industry did a lot by popularizing violence and popularizing, glamorizing criminals in many cases. But not only that, it's when the education institutions stopped having God, creation, the law of God as the moral foundation for all education. When you start to have situation ethics, I mean, you came from nothing, you're going nowhere, life is meaningless. This is devastating. To I mean, why should you do what's right and wrong if there's no eternal heaven, hell, day of judgment, mm. God? And uh, when there's no right or wrong, it's just a matter of, you know, whatever you feel like, situation ethics. I would say these things explain far more. The failure of law enforcement, the failure of government, the failure of the courts, the failure on the most basic level of education, entertainment, news media. I would look at those more. But these days, I'm told that drugs are often a major factor. Mm -hmm. And there are some people who've done studies who claim that all of these mass shooters are on mind-altering drugs. Wow. Well, that's truly a terrifying thought. With all this in mind... What then would you say is the solution to gun violence? Well, the only solution to a bad person with a gun is a good person with a gun. If <laughs> if you leave the battlefield in the hands of people without a conscience, well, it's useless for the sheep to pass resolutions in favor of vegetarianism while the wolf remains of a different opinion. So plainly, uh, when you've got the politicians, I mean, just take Justin Trudeau as one classic example of, of a hypocrite with double standards. So for those who do not know who Justin Trudeau is, would you mind sharing? Yes. So Justin Trudeau is the prime minister of Canada, or at least um, that's what he should be. He seems to think he's the dictator. In fact, Justin Trudeau has said uh, on TV that to him, the ideal government system is that of Red China. He, he says, wow. it's just, he said, in China, they could turn the country around on a dime. They don't need to wait for public opinion. So on the government can just enact whatever they want on green legislation, whatever, lockdowns. And and he's lifted up Red China as, as he, he really uh, finds this very impressive. So, wow. uh, and when you read his eulogy for Fidel Castro, my, you know, you'd think Fidel Castro is the greatest hero uh, the world has ever seen. So a little disturbed when you have a Western democratically elected prime minister who seems to have a love for totalitarian dictatorships and more than admiration. Still, mm. so he, for hypocrisy, here's Justin Trudeau standing up this week saying we're going to take away firearms from anyone who's not in the government. No private citizen needs a firearm. Now, this is somebody who's surrounded by layers of security. He's surrounded by bodyguards who all have firearms. Now, if you think you need firearms for protection, how dare you stop other people having it? And we've got parliamentarians and cabinet ministers surrounded by armed security, and they're saying, you, who can't afford that and don't have that privilege, you're not allowed to have even just your own little 38 special or something to protect yourself if some thug kicks in the door and so on in the middle of the night. Even the most gun-free person, if they're facing a crisis, what do they do? They phone someone who's got a gun and they pray that they'll get there in time. Now, it's funny because many of them want to ban prayer in schools and they want to ban firearms. But in the event of a crisis, even those hypocrites pray that a man with a gun will get there in time mm -hmm. to protect them. So if firearms are the way to protect our politicians, why not allow them to protect our children? And to think that parliament is surrounded with people with guns, but the schools are meant to have a gun-free sticker. 
when not even the teachers allowed to have a firearm. Now, that's not very logical. So, for example, back in the 1960s, late 60s, there was a spate of terror attacks on schools in Israel when uh, terrorists, PLO terrorists, burst in and machine gunned Jewish kids in schools in Israel. Solution of State of Israel was not to print gun-free stickers, and this is the gun-free zone. They armed the teachers with uh, assault rifles, and uh, the grandparents of many of the children uh, who were retired came in and sat uh, at the school door uh, with their uh, rifle across their knee. And um, funnily enough, there's no school shooting since 1971 in Israel. So plainly... Mm. Arming teachers and protecting schools with firearms works better than America's philosophy of banning even the teachers from having firearms. Now, many of the teachers in American schools are ex-policemen, military veterans, people who've won medals in wars. Why should they not be allowed to have a firearm if they are legally uh, have the right to do so? Because they won't use it to harm the kids, they'll use it to protect them. And plainly, these this is a gun-free zone sign aren't working very well. It's almost like welcoming criminals. We're unarmed. Please come, if you would like, to attack our students. Sadly so. And, of course, you must also add that, especially in our country, we've got lots of shopping centers that now, you know, gun-free zone, nobody allowed with a firearm. That's all. And this is where, sh where mass shooting is taking place. Not in police stations, not at gun shows, uh, not the shooting range. Uh, where mass shooting is taking place? Shopping malls and in uh, schools. Because that's where the criminal knows nobody will be there. Just to give you another example from Cape Town's history. 25th of July, 1993, terrorists, upper terrorists of the Pan-African Congress burst into St. James Church of England in Cape Town, which is the largest evangelical evangelistic church in Cape Town at that time. They burst into the church and without warning, opened fire with automatic weapons, hurtling hand grenades, hand grenades with nails taped around it for extra shrapnel impact into the congregation. And within seconds, they'd killed 11 people and crippled and injured over 50. Well, it just took a few seconds for our missionary, Charles, who's a good family friend, uh, to recognize what was going on because his first thought when the door was kicked open is, this is a youth group skit. But as he said, when he started to see uh, some you know, fragments flying and all this, he realized this is no, uh, no drill. This was the real thing. And he drew his 38 special uh, knelt down, uh, resting his hand on the pew in front of him to be absolutely sure that nobody who's crouching for, for cover uh, would be injured. And he fired carefully um, over the tops of the, uh, the pews uh, at the terrorist who was standing at the door and hit him. Um, uh, a wound in the hand, and at this, not that he's aiming at the hand, I mean, it was about 50 yards, 50 meters. So it's a, a very good shot just to have gotten him at all. And they fled. The terrorists fled. He pursued. And they were standing by the cars with their weapons ready and obviously waiting for people to come screaming out of the church to get another second chance. So Sean mm -hmm. fired his remaining shots at them and they got in the vehicle and they fled, leaving some blood stains, which enabled the police later to get DNA matches and to get them arrested. Mm -hmm. And Sean's written about this and shooting back the right and duty of self-defense. And Colonel uh, Skulk Vaskaki, who is the son-in-law of uh, President P.W. Boota, he was the police uh, from police intelligence responsible for that investigation. So we've got his story of how they caught the terrorists um, in his book, Under Fire in South Africa. So there's a case where the terrorists came in and they thought, and we've even had the PAC uh, commander, uh, uh, Litlapa, come to our boardroom at our mission and tell us 
how he organized a terrorist attack, and how they chose St. James Church of England in the southern suburbs because they thought there would be nobody armed there. They thought, we can't do this in northern suburbs because there's a lot of conservative Afrikaans people and they're probably wow. armed. So they thought English liberals in southern suburbs, most likely nobody's going to be armed in the church. And after St. James, they were going to go on and attack Christchurch, Kenilworth, which is only about a kilometer or so up the road, also in Kenilworth, and, uh, which is the Anglican church. So they were going to hit two churches in a row. And because they encountered resistance and one of the people was injured at the first attack, they scrapped the second. So one man with a 38 special amongst the 1,400 in that church, one man armed, saved many lives. In fact, the police commissioner gave Charles an award and a commendation for his courageous prompt action, which saved hundreds of lives. And there's no doubt that he did because the plans of the terrorists was after emptying four magazines each into the congregation and hurtling, and each of them had four to five grenades each. And there were four terrorists in the attack and plus one driver. Their plan was to then hurtle, uh, to barricade the doors and to put uh, petrol bombs in and burn the church with the people locked mm. inside and go to the next church. So one man's resistance saved a lot of lives. And so, again, that is an argument in favor of letting law-abiding citizens carry a weapon because what's the solution to bad people with firearms, with malicious intention and heart? Well, a good person with a firearm. There is no other way. How else are you going to stop it? So how would you regulate such a thing? Because those who sell... Uh, gun licenses and guns, etc., or go through that process legally speaking. How can they tell if the person is of good moral conduct and well, will actually uphold a moral code? Well, in South Africa, we do have gun registration and a very uh, demanding process that people go through. Probably too demanding, but nevertheless, when you get your your license to carry and conceal carry in South Africa, it's it means the police could find no criminal record. Uh, you've not just of good standing. They even require character references and you know the past of the employer, things like this. It's uh, quite a process. It is a very serious process, and they teach you the law and they teach you the when you can and can't. And, and so there are different ways in which you can have a screening process to try and screen out mentally unstable criminals and and so on. Mm -hmm. And uh, when that's done, the society's safer. But the trouble is, even once you've done that. The criminals don't go through that process and they still get firearms anyway. So even if you were to exclude the law abiding to have weapons, it doesn't stop the lawbreakers having them. So, yes, I think we should be sure to try and keep firearms out of the hands of criminals, convicted felons, murderers. <laughs> In fact, we shouldn't have murderers out loose anyway if we were following biblical law. Um, first degree murder. Um, no extenuating circumstances, execution. That is biblical. It's like amputation. You don't want to amputate a limb, but to save the whole body, sometimes that's necessary. Mm -hmm. And when we had uh, capital punishment enforced, murders in this country were in the hundreds. Since we've abolished capital punishment for murder, murders have gone into the tens of thousands a year. So every year in South Africa, anything from 22 to 35,000 people are murdered in this country every year since the abolishment of, of capital punishment. So in the name of the right to life, which is in our constitution, they've taken away the right of a judge, a duly trained judge in a calm environment of court to place the death penalty on a murderer. But they've allowed criminals to take away the right to life of the innocent. 
And of course, they allow abortion too, which is also a violation of the right to life. So there's a lot of hypocrisy and double standards and failure on the part of governments here. So I suppose it would be safe to say that you do not believe that gun control is the answer. No, except if we're thinking in terms of what Shaw was doing, where gun control was hitting your target, um, being able to control your weapon well, that kind of gun control where you can get a nice grouping in the in the middle of the target. Um, but that's not what people think of. When they talk about gun control, they're meaning gun registration uh, followed by gun confiscation, which happened in Australia, for example. And uh, as you can notice, those countries where the governments have been the most brutal in cracking down on people, on everything from the masquerade madness to the lockdown lunacy uh, and the salvation by vaccination, mandatory vaccinations, are countries where they've disarmed their people, like Canada and Australia and New Zealand, Red China. So that in places where the people are disarmed, the governments can do whatever they want and the people have no recourse. So uh, you, we cannot trust governments, I'm afraid, uh, to the extent that I... I could uh, keep on here all day with examples of how governments have murdered their own citizens, but I don't need to. I can just mention a couple of books. Black Book of Communism, written by six ex-communists, including um, Stéphane Cotet, who is the editor of Communisme magazine in France. He was an official member of the Communist Party. as the editor of the magazine in France. And just using the communists' own documentation from their own archives, which were opened up after 1990, after the fall of Berlin Wall and the collapse of the Soviet Union, Communist, the Black Book of Communism documents over 100 million people killed in the Warsaw Pact countries, Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact countries in Eastern Europe, officially by their own documents. 100 million of their own citizens killed. Not foreigners killed in war, their own citizens killed in peacetime. Mm. So that the greatest threat to life in the 20th century has not been firearm accidents. It hasn't been even crime. The greatest threat to life in the 20th century hasn't even been war. Unbelievable after the First and Second World War that you can say that. The greatest threat to life in the 20th century has been governments, secular socialist governments, communist governments that have first disarmed their people and then slaughtered them. As Alexander Solzhenitsyn documented, 66 million people, mostly Christians, killed in the Soviet Union under Lenin and Stalin alone. And then you can go through the Black Book of Communism documents, 100 million people killed in the Soviet Union and as its satellites from 1917 to 1991 alone. But then the Death by Government book by Professor R.J. Rommel, who is a political science lecturer at University of Hawaii, Professor R.J. Rommel's book, Death by Government, which I've read, which is very daunting, he shows he calls it democide, where death by government, where the governments kill their own citizens. And he documents 169 million people killed in the 20th century alone by governments, their own citizens killed by governments. So... When, when you're thinking about threats to, to life, it's, it's not foreigners, it's not criminals, it's, it's not gun uh, accidents. The biggest threat to life is disarmed populations and secular governments who don't believe in God, don't believe in right and wrong, don't believe in Ten Commands, who believe in Marxism. The end justifies the means, uh, the party is always right, we never make mistakes and all that sort of thing, which Alexander Solzhenitsyn document well so. I think we need to bear that in mind. And it's much better to have a population like Switzerland where the citizens are armed than a situation like in Red China where only the government is armed. Well, that is certainly a lot of terrifying information to think about. And I think a lot of our listeners may be wondering, with all this in mind, 
What does the Bible say about weapons and the right to self-defense? Well, quite clearly, we've got our Lord Jesus Christ said to us in Luke 22, verse 36, He who has no sword, let him sell his cloak and buy one. Now, bear in mind, the sword was the best weapon available at the time. Uh, the sword was like the assault rifle of the first century. In fact, it, you would have said through most of military history, the sword was the best. And I've been for eight years a member of Historic European Martial Arts, and we practice sword fighting, and we study uh, from the ancient codes of the knights and so on, everything from German double-handed long sword through to the um, Scottish um, basket sword or the uh, claymore, as they called it. Uh, I mean, if you wonder what, Claymore was, these days people think of a claymore as an explosive device, but back then it was a sword. And there's a lot of things that they're using today that they're using old words for uh, that uh, used to refer to something like a sword. Well, the swords were so effective uh, as, as a weapon. And our Lord Jesus says, he who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. And the law of God is clear. Exodus 22 verse 2. If the thief is found breaking in and he is struck so that he dies, there shall be no guilt for his bloodshed. So the law of God establishes the basic right of self-defense. Any person is justified in defending himself or his family whenever they're attacked or their lives are endangered. And any weapon is permissible for use in self-defense. The law of God doesn't say the homeowner is guilty if he uses a sword, but he's innocent if he uses a club. Mm -hmm. Now, in fact, the issue is not one of weapons, the right of self-defense. So the Bible doesn't tell us what weapon was used by Cain to kill his brother Abel. And God didn't respond by banning all stones, clubs, knives, or whatever the weapon was. We don't even know what the weapon was that Cain used to kill Abel. The point is God dealt with the murderer. It's the murderer it's, uh, that, that needs to be dealt with, and he was banished. Uh, the, the weapon is so irrelevant, it's not even mentioned. The first murder in the Bible, the weapon isn't blamed. And we know that a bad workman blames his tools. So it's no good for me to say, you know, the hammer did it or the jackhammer did it or the drill did it. Uh, well, I'm the one using the tool. If, if damage was done, uh, you blame the workman, not the tool. But today we've got a strange situation that we've got politicians who don't believe that people should be responsible for their own actions today, but they believe that people should be held accountable for what their ancestors might have done centuries ago, maybe. Uh, and they don't believe that babies have the right to life, but they do believe that murderers have the right to life. And they don't believe you should have firearms to defend yourself, but they have lots of people surrounding them who've got firearms to defend themselves. And so there's so much inconsistency right now, and they're trying to think that if you legislate to stop the weapons, well, do pencils make you misspell? You know, do spoons make one fat? Uh, does having a, a flash drive make you a hacker? Does having a lighter make you an arsonist? Well, having a gun doesn't necessarily make you a criminal or murderer. But when I went to the Netherlands, I was told by the people there, you know, in the Netherlands, everything is legal, except firearms, which is pretty sad commentary. Because mm. there's, you know, prostitution is legal, pornography is legal, drugs are legal, but firearms are not. And what's the, Dan what's the Dutch society like? Well, they've got a lot of problems. Uh, it's, it's not ideal at all. And it's not like they've saved themselves from violence either. Do you know in Britain, there are 30 murders a day uh, with uh, assaults with knives. So knife violence in Britain has just, because guns are banned, well, you know, there's a lot of violence that took place before the invention of firearms. Firearms might be an efficient tool, but in the hands of someone who knows what he's doing, um, I can tell you swords 
can cause a lot of damage. And Asagai's killed literally something like 3 million people under Shaka Zulu and uh, Dingon. So, uh, and we know that something like 800,000 people were killed with machetes in six weeks in Rwanda. So don't, we shouldn't delude ourselves by thinking that a gun-free zone would be violence-free. England's a gun-free zone, but they're facing a vast amount of assaults with knives and, and uh, kitchen knives and machetes. And So uh, bl blunt and sharp objects kill more people every year in our country than firearms do. So when it comes to murders, literally the blunt and sharp facts of the matter are that knives and clubs kill more people every year in South Africa by murder than firearms do. Wow. Well, I know from my history living here that this is true, and there are lots of surrounding factors to murders taking place, and often has to do with drunken brawls or just all kinds of different things, and not everyone has access to a gun, of course, so it would make sense that knives and, like you said, clubs are a lot more common in terms of weapons of manslaughter. So what do you think the solution is going forward? What can we mm -hmm. do to protect ourselves and our families, but also live peaceably and not live in fear? Yes. So uh, just you mentioning about um, the, the murders taking place in South Africa, I actually p read police reports, and I've gotten the police statistics for many years, and it's very, very interesting. How's this for the kind of facts that aren't normally reported? Although the police make these reports available, but not many journalists take the information out. Mm. In South Africa, the vast majority of murders, uh, drugs and alcohol are involved. So not only is the murderer under the control of alcohol or drugs at the time, the vast majority of cases, most of the victims are also under the influence of drugs or alcohol at the time. In fact, you know that most murders in South Africa take place on Friday and Saturday nights in and around bars, shabines, and other places where alcohol or drugs are served. Now, I would have thought that's a very significant piece of information. Um, you know, this attitude that somehow these cold inanimate objects are causing all the, the violence, but no, in fact, drugs and alcohol are the common denominator. Here's another factor that might intrigue people. The vast majority of vehicle accidents, um, alcohol or drugs are involved. And not only are most of the car accidents drug and alcohol related, most pedestrian deaths are also drug and alcohol uh, related. The person who is knocked over was under the influence of alcohol or drugs. Uh, most drownings in South Africa, the person drowned is under the influence of alcohol and drugs. Most domestic abuse, uh, alcohol and drugs are involved. So again, this is very inconvenient. These are inconvenient facts for those who try to drive an anti-gun narrative. But I would say, what, what is the solution? Well, let's take... The biblical principle, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. And we're told, and that's that's in Genesis 9, verse 5 to 6, which is the Noahic covenants given immediately after the flood for all generations. 1 Timothy 5, verse 8, if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. 1 Timothy 5, 8. So obviously, Fathers and husbands are required by Almighty God to provide for their families. And of course, this must include food and housing and clothing and education, medical care and love and discipleship, spiritual guidance for sure. But it must also include protection. <laughs> of what worth is all other provisions if one doesn't provide protection as well? And anyone who fails to provide for his family has denied the faith and is worse than infidel. 
Well, I'd add to that. I'd say a person who refused to fight or provide for the protection of their own children is worse than an animal. I don't know any animal that will not fight to protect its young. But notice something else interesting. God has endowed all his creatures with claws, talons, teeth, horns, stings, venom, swift wings, or other means for fight or flight. So self-defense is built into nature. Why are we to assume that a God who's provided his animals with such impressive array of weaponry would expect his people to be disarmed and to be doormats? And the scripture says that, in fact, um, Proverbs 25 verse 26, a righteous man who falters before the wicked is like a murky spring and a polluted well. You don't want a polluted well or murky spring. Uh, you want clean water out of it. And so a person should not fall before the wicked or falter in defending them. Nehemiah 4.14, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, great and awesome. Fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. So it's, it's a biblical principle to protect the defenseless, to defend uh, the innocent, uh, to protect widows and orphans. I mean, this is biblical. This is what knights of old had to swear to when they received their sword and were inducted into the knighthood. So the biblical principles are also in our legal tradition. English legal tradition has always recognized the right of free citizens to possess weapons, carry weapons for self-defense. King Alfred the Great, in the dooms of King Alfred, which is the foundation of the English common law, he made it clear, he starts off with the Ten Commandments and uh, of Exodus 20 and in the uh, case laws of Exodus as the preamble for the laws and then uh, makes it clear that while disturbing a meeting by drawing a sword in a meeting is prohibited, the basic right of self-defense was entrenched. The laws of Knut in the 11th century declared self-defense to not just be a right but a duty. And anyone who failed to assist a person under attack was to be fined. And anyone who disarmed a man was to be fined. And Magna Carta, the grandfather of all Bill of Rights, the first statute, the first written restriction on the powers of government, uh, Magna Carta, the Great Charter of 1215, guaranteed the right of all free men to keep and to bear arms. The English Declaration of Rights. Most people don't know that England had a Declaration of Rights predates the American Declaration of Rights, Bill of Rights, by a good century. The Bill of Rights in England of 1689 recognized the right of having and using arms for self-preservation and defense. Of course, everyone knows the American uh, Second Amendment entrenches that right to keep and bear arms as well. But not only that, if you go to church documents, the 39 Articles, the foundational statement to the Church of England, states clearly in Article 37, it is lawful for Christian men to carry weapons. And the Westminster Catechism, the finest expression of biblical teaching, states under the sixth commandment that the prohibition against murder requires as our duty all careful studies and lawful endeavors to preserve the life of ourselves and others by resisting, by just defense against violence, protecting and defending the innocent. So um, these are solid biblical principles. We should know how to defend ourselves. We should know how to defend others. The... The principle in the Bible is that you must love your neighbor. You must love your neighbor by protecting your neighbor and doing to them what you'd want to be done unto ourselves. And the Good Samaritan helped a man who was found beaten by the side of the road. What if he'd got there earlier and the man was about to be attacked? Should he just wait until he's beaten up and then help him? No, well, if he's got the means to prevent the attack, even better. And so that's been Christian tradition for centuries. And it's a bit disturbing that in the last half of the 20th century and beginning of the 21st century, people have more and more come to the principle of, I don't, I'm not responsible for my neighbor, the government is. 
And there isn't this good neighborliness where you help someone in need mm. as common today. But that's the biblical principle. So you just answered my question about how the right to bear arms and gun violence applies to loving your neighbor. But what about those who are wondering, well, Scripture also tells us to turn the other cheek. If someone is pointing a gun at you, there may be pacifists listening mm -hmm. here. And I know that you once were a pacifist, and I'm sure that's too long a story to share right now. However, how would you respond to someone who says, none of us should ever have a gun, it's too violent? Well, remember, the Bible is not a pacifist document. And you will see there's a lot of wars in the Bible. And there's a lot Indeed. of great soldiers in the Bible. And King David is a man after God's own heart, was a soldier and the author of the Psalms, the greatest expression of worship, the biggest book in the Bible, the prayer book of the Bible, the hymn book of the Bible, the, ba the book of the Old Testament most quoted by Lord Jesus is uh, the Psalms. And King David was a soldier. And so plainly, pacifism is not in the Bible, nor is God a pacifist. As we can see, he did wipe out 185,000 Assyrians who were invading Jerusalem. He did wipe out the Egyptian charioteers in the Red Sea. And, um, and in fact, he continues to use his four dreadful judgments, plague and the sword and flood and famine. So God is not a pacifist. And when our Lord Jesus returns, he'll not come as a pacifist either. On this earth, when he came as a savior, he did once take the whip and chase out corrupt money lenders out of the temple. But the next time, our Lord will come with a sharp double-edged sword for his mouth, and he'll strike down the armies of Antichrist, and he will judge the wicked, and there's nothing pacifist about the Lord Jesus. So our Lord said, if someone strikes you in one cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, what did he say? If somebody strikes you, slaps you on the one cheek, it's not talking about if somebody stabs you in one cheek, let him stab you in the heart as well. It's not saying if somebody attacks your sister, let him attack your mother as well. Uh, it's, it's not saying if they nuke one town, let them nuke another. It's a slap. Don't fight over an insult. So, in fact, the church has, through the centuries, had the standard, don't fight over an insult. This old way when a man would take a glove and slap it in a man's face, say, I demand satisfaction. Or they'd just throw down the gauntlet, throw down the glove, and it would be understood. You know, pistols at dawn or swords at dawn, and you, you've got to turn out in the common there, and, and you'll have, have a duel. Well, that's fighting over pride, and we're not meant to fight over pride. So don't fight over an insult. But the Bible establishes self-defense, and it establishes the right of national defense, and it also establishes the principle of execution for capital crimes like murder, rape, and kidnapping. Therefore, you should not take turn the other cheek out of context. Yes, I must love my enemy, but I must also love God and my parents and my children, my family. I must love my neighbors, my brethren, and I must love my enemy. So... On that night when St. James Church of England was attacked, our friend and missionary, Charles, shot back at the terrorists. He showed love for his parents and friends and brethren because that was their church. And, of course, God, whose church was being attacked. But after the terrorists were caught, he testified in court to help um, bring about conviction. And then he visited them in the cells. And he took them Bibles and he prayed with them and he shared the gospel with them. And he even visited their families um, back home. Now, that's loving an enemy. Now, I've stood up to and fought against the communist terrorists, but I've also taken the gospel to them and I've shown the Jesus for them and I've distributed gospel literature. So I believe in loving my enemy and turn the other cheek. There's many a time I've been insulted that I have not responded uh, in kind. Uh, so, yes, this is a principle. Let's not go further than what the Bible says. Don't fight over an insult. Well, as it says in 2 Peter 2 verse 19, while they promise them freedom, they themselves are slaves of depravity. 
So it seems the root is not the guns themselves, as you said earlier. It's really about where our spiritual um, lives are. So with that in mind, thank you, Dad, for all that you've shared. Are there any last thoughts that you want to share with people? Yes. If people want to read more on this, I've written the books Security and Survival Handbook, Security and Survival Handbook has case studies like the St. James Massacre and Home Invasion and Switzerland's strategy for survival. A lot of practicals on self-defense and protection and survival in our very dangerous society. So Security and Survival Handbook, which is also available as an ebook and a print on demand. And then there's Under Fire in South Africa by Colonel Skulk Vaskaki, who's a policeman who faced a lot of everything from the bombings, the terrorism and, and, and being ambushed himself and incredibly good insights. I've written on Holocaust and Rwanda in the killing fields of Mozambique, Faith and Defiance Sudan, and most recently, Frontline, Behind Enemy Lines for Christ. So these are some books that help people who are interested in how do we respond in war and how do we respond to uh, violence and uh, what happened in Rwanda and, and what the solutions are. So if you want to read more, visit www.frontlinemissionsa.org, frontlinemissionsa.org, or write to mission at frontline.org.za. Thank you, Dad. Thank you for all this information. This was From the Frontline, Faith and Firearms, the Biblical, Historical, and Practical Basis for Self-Defense. I'm Andrea Combs. Thank you for joining us, and God bless.